Just last Sunday, we concluded a series of messages from the book of Ezra called The Hope and Promise of Revival. And through the next four Sundays, the four Sundays of Advent, what we're going to do is follow up on that series by looking at some of the prophets who were in this post-exilic period. It's called post-exilic because it's after the people of Israel were exiled to Babylon and a remnant has returned back to Judah. Uh, This is, for many people, kind of a blank spot in their understanding of the Bible. And so what we're going to do over the next four weeks is look at the people who were contemporary to Ezra and how God used them to make Jesus known. As we think about this in terms of Advent, we're going to have a special focus in these books on what does it say about the coming of our Lord Jesus. So this week we'll be looking at Haggai. Uh, You're wondering where that is in the Bible? Well, uh, it's really where we're going to be going is three of the last books of the Old Testament. And Haggai is the third to last book in the Old Testament. So if you find Matthew, just keep flipping backward a couple of pages and you'll get to Haggai. I want to set this in context. And so what we're going to do next is look at a bunch of charts that have a whole bunch of dates on them. Not because there's going to be a pop quiz afterward but only to let you know that this is in a real place in a real time, okay? And to give you sometimes uh, a historical point of view gives you some kind of uh, hand and foothold on the reality of what's taking place. I I want you to have a a clearer understanding of what's happening in this post-exilic period. So let's think first of all of some approximate dates of the post-exilic period. Remember, the Jews were carried off into captivity in Babylon about 586 B.C. And then there was a return under Cyrus by Zerubbabel, and the altar was rebuilt, the altar at at the temple, not the temple itself, but the altar was rebuilt at 538. The temple rebuilding was stopped, according to Ezra 424, around 530 B.C., And then there was a 10-year stoppage in the rebuilding of the temple. And then under Darius, there was a decree to to start the rebuilding again, but the people weren't doing it. And so God sent two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to prophesy in this time frame to urge the people to refocus. They had gotten focused on themselves and the building of their own kingdoms, and, he, and, and these prophets are there to say, look, look at your God. And then, of course, the people began to rebuild. And so five years later, the temple was rebuilt. Uh, now, just this is a little parenthesis. Meanwhile, back in Persia, meanwhile, back in Persia, the story of Esther happens. Okay? And... Um, Uh, We did a series on that. Uh, Some of you may remember the it just so happened refrain that's in Ezra or in Esther. And then uh, going back to Judea, Ezra comes from Babylon to Jerusalem about 458 BC. 
And then a few years later, Nehemiah comes to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. And then somewhere in there, different people date Malachi either earlier or later, but somewhere in there, Malachi prophesies. And so, what we're going to see over the next four weeks is we will look at Haggai, and then Zechariah, and then Nehemiah, and then Malachi. And we'll be doing the whole book each week. So, get ready, strap on, you know, your uh, concentration so that you can be uh, prepared for where we're headed. And in every one of these books, we're going to see some remarkable ways in which Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. Now, to just set this in terms of dates of bigger events, uh, 722 is when the northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed. Uh, 626 is when Babylon conquered Assyria. 586, as we mentioned, the southern kingdom of Judah falls to Babylon. And then Persia conquers Babylon in 539, and then Cyrus issues that decree a year later. The rebuilding is stopped between 530 and 520. Darius the Great becomes the king of Persia, and then Haggai and Zechariah prophesy as Darius issues this decree to restart the rebuilding. So what that what this slide is just demonstrating is that that we're taking a bigger picture out. Uh, In terms of the Persian kings who were here at this time, Cyrus the Great, of course, caused this uh, decree for the people of of Judah to return. It was under Cambyses, his son, that the work is stopped. And then under Darius, the work stayed stopped for a little while, and then it's renewed And then he's followed by Ahasuerus, who's Esther's husband, followed by Artaxerxes, where the work stops again and then is renewed seven years later. Uh, This is a picture of Darius the Great, uh, in whose reign Haggai comes to Judea to prophesy. Now, uh, with that in mind... Let's think about a few things of how we understand this book of Haggai. One way to think about it is the timing of it. So uh, Haggai presents dates when he prophesies. He prophesies over about a three-month period of time. And chapter 1, verse 1 says it's the second year of Darius in the sixth month on the first day of the month. If you want to know, it's August 29th of 520 B.C., okay? But it was a new moon festival, which is something that was important in Numbers. The second dating we get in Haggai is chapter 1, verse 15, which is 23 days later, September 21st. In response to Haggai's message, people do forsake their selfish ways and the rebuilding of the temple is started again. Chapter 2, verse 1, is about a month later, October 17th, and it's a celebration of the harvest, but the harvest is really small, and the temple rebuilding doesn't have the, the glory that the temple had previously before it had been destroyed. In chapter 2, verse 10, we're now at December 18th, three months after the rebuilding had started, And there's a hope for early rains that will come so that this next year's harvest will be better than the previous year's. 
And finally, in chapter 2, verse 20, on the very same day as the prophecy of chapter 2, verse 10, comes a second prophecy, which is a prophecy of way far in the future, on that day, okay? So Haggai is getting grand in this uh, revelation from God of what God's doing with his eternal program. So one way to think about this book is in terms of these four references to dates where the specific prophecies from Haggai come. A second way for us to think about the book is to look at this repeated phrase, Lord of hosts. It's found 14 times in just these two chapters, Lord of hosts, Lord of hosts. And you might say, well, yeah, so what, Lord of hosts? Oh, but that phrase means a whole lot. It means Lord of the armies. You say, well, Lord of whose army? And it's the Lord of his own army. Sometimes when we think of angels, and particularly at Christmas time this happens, you have a little angel at the top of your tree, and it looks like a little baby with tiny wings, and that is not an angel. Okay? An angel is a fearsome warrior. In fact, every time where people have encounters with angels in the Bible, what does the angel have to say? Fear not. Well, you wouldn't say that unless there was something to fear. And angels were fearsome, dread, amazing warriors. And so when the Bible describes the Lord as the Lord of hosts, it means the loyal, covenant-keeping, self-existent God of the armies of the universe who is in control of everything. And 14 times that phrase is used in this prophet Haggai. Another way in which we can look at this book is the way in which God uses this expression, the word of the Lord came, and sometimes it's came by Haggai or came by the hand of Haggai. The point of that repeated phrase is to say that the Lord is giving revelation to his people in a written or spoken form, and the agent is his man, the prophet, and the prophet is receiving a message that he is faithfully delivering to God's people. That'll be something that you'll see through the book as well. With that in mind, let's look at chapter 1, where the people feared the Lord. That doesn't happen right away. In the first six verses, what you have instead of fearing the Lord is a bunch of excuse making. You ever made excuses? Ever done a yes but? You know, yeah, I know what God's word says, but. That was what was going on at the time that Haggai is called to be the Lord's prophet. The decree had happened to rebuild the temple, but the people were saying, you know, that's a good idea, and it's good to do someday, but it's really not the time to do that. And the reason that they gave, they actually had some good excuses we're working hard, fingers to the bone, to try to make our way here now that we've returned to this land, and we're just not making it. We got to work harder. We've got to strive. 
So look at uh, what it says here in, in beginning at verse two. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. It, it's a good idea, it's just not time for it. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, there's that phrase. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins. Consider, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You know, there will always be people who will say it's not time to join God in his work. There will always be people who will say it's not a time to make great risks for God. There will always be people who will say, no, 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 practically, we need to think about this a little bit more. And they will, in fact, have some facts on their side, but they will be wrong. It is also true, and hear me here, it is also true that small risk takers for God are comfort seekers for themselves. Small risk takers for God are comfort seekers for themselves. They don't want to take the risk because it could damage my life. It could hinder my life. It could cause some damage to me. Wrong thinking leads to wrong action. They're trying to build their own houses while the temple lies in ruins. God says that these so-called legitimate excuses are unacceptable. The result of these wrong priorities is a strained relationship with God. Do you see how God calls them this people? Verse 2, these people say. He doesn't say my people. It's not because they're not his people but he's distancing himself from their priorities right now. The result for comfort seekers, if you, if you spend your life trying to find comfort rather than taking risks for God, here's what you'll discover. You lose the very comfort that you're seeking. You end up losing the very comfort that you're seeking. There's work here. You see, you've sown much, lots of work, harvested little, there's work, but it's not leading to any progress. You're alive, you eat, but you're not really living. You, you, you don't have enough to eat. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. You're alive, but you're not really living. You have a plan for the future. You're putting your wages and saving them away in a bag but you're doing it to put it into a bag that has holes in it and it's just dribbling away. Excuse making causes a lack of blessing. Well, what's the remedy? Well, painful reflection is required. Verse seven, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Face the failure painfully reflect on where the course of your life is taking you and say, wait a minute, I've been living for myself here. And do 
what you know is right for God's pleasure and God's glory. Verse 8, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Do what is right, not because it will be better for you, but for God's pleasure and God's glory. Verses 9 through 11 uh, face the reason for our failure. You looked for much, it came to little, you brought it home, God says, I blew it away. (laughs) Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, the earth has withheld its produce, I've called for a drought on the land and the hills, the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. You know, what's really amazing is that people often will do this. They'll be so focused on their own world and their own kingdom. They call themselves believers, but they're so focused on their own world and they go, you know what, I'm trying, but I'm just not getting ahead here. I don't understand what's going on. And then something bad happens in their life where they see the holes in their bag or the fact that they aren't making any progress in the building of their own comfort. And you know what they end up doing? Rather than painfully reflecting on their own priorities, they look and they blame God for their troubles. In verses 12 to 15, I want you to notice joyfully that the people of this land here did not respond in that way. Zerubbabel, who is the governor, Joshua, who is the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, look what it says, verse 12, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. So they reprioritize. There's a revival that happens. We've read about it in in Ezra. Uh, Ezra chapter 5 talks about Haggai and Zechariah coming and prophesying that leads to this revival. The people, it says, feared the Lord, verse 12. What does that mean? It means worship. It means they recognized who God is and they acted upon that rather than recognizing their own situation and circumstances and thought they'd better get their act together to make a better life for themselves. Instead of personal peace and an affluent lifestyle, they pursued God. The people feared the Lord. Notice God's promise in verse 13 when they make this change of priority. Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you. I am with you. Isn't that beautiful? God promises his presence and he stirs up Zerubbabel and Joshua, the governor and the high priest. He stirs up leaders And then it says, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, verse 14. God stirs up the leaders and his people, and guess what? Verse 14, the very end, they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. They they got the right work done. 
They're engaged in something now bigger than themselves. And it's not about the physical work of working for their own vineyard and now they're working on a building. It is the shift of their thinking away from worship of self and building their own kingdom to worship of God and the glory of God. And the right work gets done. So now we come to chapter 2, the promise of future glory. In the first three verses, we see that the glory of the worship of God in the present isn't close to what it was in the past. Uh, What happens is, uh, verse 3, Haggai asks the question to Zerubbabel and to Joshua and to the people, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Who, Who saw that? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? During the revival in Ezra, Ezra actually records this, that the people who, when the rebuilt temple was done, there were people that were rejoicing. But the people who had seen the first temple were weeping and wailing because it wasn't anywhere close to what the glory of the first temple had been. And Ezra records that you couldn't really discern the shouts of joy from the, from the shouts of tears. And, and Haggai's saying, let's face this. The glory of the worship of God right now is not as great as it was in the past. So does that mean total defeat? You just go home and just shake your head and go, well, too bad. I guess it's just not as good as it used to be. That's not what Haggai says, verse 4. Verse 4, yet now, despite the fact that it's not as great as it used to be, yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. Be strong anyway. Why? Because God is with us. If the Lord is with us, it doesn't matter how big or amazing a thing looks, we have God. And that's all that matters. There's a second thing that we see in verse 5. Not only is God with us, But God's covenant remains, verse 5, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. That same covenant that happened in Exodus, the covenant I made with you when you came out of Egypt and I saved you with a strong hand, now that same covenant, I keep my promise. God has a covenant loyalty with his people. So, The Lord's presence, I'm with you. The Lord's covenant, his promise. And then thirdly, end of verse 5, my spirit remains in your midst. Even though it might not be felt, perhaps even though it might not be felt as strongly as in the past, and even though the size and scope of this work is indeed smaller, don't be afraid. 
I'm with you, my covenant is with you, it remains, and my spirit remains in your midst, fear not. As we look at the panorama of world events right now, and we read of all kinds of things happening in the global church that could describe folks that could say, oh man, back in the old days it was so great and so wonderful. We need to keep these things in mind. The Lord's promise to be with us, His covenant with us, His Spirit remains. Do not, do not be afraid. In fact, the grand drama of God's building of God's kingdom demands a fearless people of God. Look at verse 5 of chapter 2. It's not that they are strong, but then verse 6, God says, yet once more in a little while, I'm going to shake things up. I'm going to shake the heavens, the earth, the sea, the dry land. I'll shake all nations. (laughs) Now, whenever we see prophecy in the Bible, we should think of it in these terms. God makes a prophecy And then there can be a near fulfillment and maybe a fulfillment a little further along. And then there's always some ultimate way in which this promise is fulfilled. Now here, I actually think that maybe the nearest fulfillment of God shaking up the heavens and the earth and and all of that is the coming battle at Marathon. Uh, Look that up sometime. Not right now on your phones, but, you know, Wikipedia the battle at Marathon, and you will discover that this is when a seismic shift happens in which the Persian Empire starts on the decline and the Greek Empire starts on the rise. Okay, it's just kind of a a beginning point of that. And that perhaps is being hinted at here. But we know that there's something more than that, right? There's an ultimate shaking There's a shaking that's going to happen that's yet future from our point of view. It hasn't happened yet. That all the nations will be shaken so that the treasures of all nations shall come in to the temple at Jerusalem. That's a stunning prediction that has not happened yet. And here these people are in Haggai's day withholding their giving when infinite riches are being promised. And notice verse 7, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Haggai is saying through, the Lord is saying through Haggai, you think your money is so valuable that you should withhold it from God? God says, I got news for you. It's all mine. It's all mine. Look at verse 8. The silver is mine. And the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. In fact, the promise is made in verse 9 that the future glory of this house will surpass any former glory that it had. And God says, and one day I will give this place perfect shalom, perfect peace. 
How afraid do we have to be? How neglectful are we of the nature and character of God when this promise that has not yet been fulfilled belongs to God and his people? And we're sitting here in 2023 saying, yeah, but I don't know if I can give that much of my time or my energy or my resources. I'd better make sure that I can keep some things saved away for my own comfort. You see how little we risk for the kingdom of God when infinite joy is being laid before us that's coming. And it's all his anyway. And whenever he wants to, he can take it from you. The future glory of this house will surpass by far any former glory it had. Now in verses 10 to 19 of Haggai chapter 2, we have a parable. It's a parable of how God's, God works. Can we have holy things touch common things and make them holy? And the answer is no. Can we take unclean things and have them touch holy things and make them unclean? Yes. And so the bottom line is, if all that's true, verses 15 and 16, your work, in case you think you're really doing God a favor by serving him, by giving him your all, if you think you're doing God a favor, think again. Your work is worthless. Verse 15, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there was but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight, with mildew, with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. You worked so hard. How's that working for you? Your work yielded nothing. But notice what it says At the end of verse 19, indeed the vine, the fig tree, pomegranate, olive tree have yielded nothing, but from this day on, I will bless you. The sovereign choice of God to bring blessing to us without any effort on our part. That's called grace. God is promising here a time when the true worship will come by fully committed followers, but the blessing doesn't come from their work or even their worship. The blessing comes from God alone. He blesses us, why? Because he wants to bless us. Stunning. What a God we serve. And God is going to do this, according to verses 20 through 23, through his servant. It says, speak to Zerubbabel, verse 21, I'm about to shake the heavens of the earth, overthrow the throne of kingdoms, I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations, overthrow chariots and riders, horses, riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, Son of Sheltiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. On one level, 
There is a promise here that happens through Zerubbabel and Israel, uh, the nation of Judah becomes a province within the world of Persia and there is a blessing. That is a, that is a fulfillment with a, a little letter F, okay, in terms of fulfillment. But there is a grand fulfillment that's going to come here a fulfillment with a capital F that comes through a son of Zerubbabel. Here's why. Here's why, and this is where I want you to put on your concentration caps, okay? Because it gets a little complicated here, okay? Zerubbabel was the grandson, okay? The grandson of a king of Judah, one of the last kings of Judah, Now, where it gets complicated is that in the Bible, this grandfather of Zerubbabel is known by three different names. Isn't that horrible? Because then we can't figure it out, okay? He's known by Jehoiakim with an N, not an M. The M was his father, Jehoiakim with an N, okay? He's also known as Jeconiah, and he's also known as Coniah, okay? Ask me why, I'll tell you, I don't know why there's that complication. Maybe it's just so that the people of God have to study these things out. Maybe, right? Anyway, Zerubbabel's grandfather was this guy. And Jeremiah, in chapter 22, made a prophecy. The Lord gave Jeremiah this prophecy that this grandfather of Zerubbabel was cursed. Because of the sins of Judah, he was cursed, and he could never have, and the phrase that's used in Jeremiah 22, 24, he could never have the signet ring. So, wait a minute. The grandpa can't have the signet ring, but now the prophecy is that the grandson will? How does that work? In fact, if you read Jeremiah 22, verse 30, this curse on this Jehoiakim, Jeconiah, Coniah, all same guy, different names, grandpa of Zerubbabel, okay? We'll just call him Zerubbabel's grandpa, okay? This curse on Zerubbabel's grandpa is such that no one from his family tree will ever serve as the Messiah. Can't happen. Write this man down as childless is what the prophecy is in Jeremiah 22, verse 30. Well, now we've got a problem, don't we? We've got this promise here in Haggai that there's this beautiful day of a signet ring and a part of Zerubbabel, and yet he's not supposed to be the signet ring according to Jeremiah. How, how does this get resolved? Well, in terms of this ultimate fulfillment, remember we're talking about ultimate fulfillment, what we have to have is someone who is both a son of Zerubbabel, a son of this Zerubbabel's grandpa, but also not a son. How do we get that? You, can't, you, you have to be a son, and you can't be a son. That seems impossible, doesn't it? When you read genealogies in the Bible, tell me what you do. 
right? You stick the fan and you turn it on high, right? Have you ever thought, I wonder why those are there? Well, I'm glad you're asking that question because if you want to take just a moment to flip a couple of pages to Matthew chapter 1, I want to read this to you. This should blow us away. Verse 12, Matthew 1, after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah, that's this guy who was cursed in Jeremiah, was the father of Sheltiel, Sheltiel the father of Zerubbabel. You see, he got Zerubbabel's grandpa being that Jeconiah. And it goes on until we get to verse 16, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So, Jesus is a son of Zerubbabel and the fulfillment of the signet ring of the prophecy of Haggai, but he avoids the curse of Jeconiah, Zerubbabel's grandpa, because he was not the son of Joseph, was he? This is why the virgin birth is of such deep significance. At least one of the reasons, right? There's many reasons, but this is one of the reasons why this is so important to us. There's an ultimate fulfillment of Haggai chapter 2 that comes only through the son of Zerubbabel who was not a descendant of this Jehoiakim. It's why the virgin birth was a necessity. Now, if you look at Matthew chapter 1, you will see that there's some things that are pointing. You've got Abraham to David, and then you have David to the deportation to Babylon, and then you have the deportation to Babylon to Joseph, who's the husband of Mary. Why was the deportation to Babylon such a big deal? I think it's because Matthew is wanting us to look at Haggai chapter 2 and see that Jesus is in fact the fulfillment of the prophecy in Haggai chapter 2. In fact, if you, and now understand, I am not into Bible numbers. Usually when people start talking about the numbers of the Bible and what they mean, I go, do, 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 do. That's a little weird, okay? Just know that, that that's not my bag. It's not something that I think is legitimate. In fact, most of the time it's completely illegitimate. But when the author designs it that way, that's when it starts to make sense to you. And in Matthew chapter 1, what does it say? How many generations from Abraham to David? It says 14. How many generations from David to the deportation to Babylon? 14. How many generations from the deportation to Babylon to Joseph? 14. In Hebrew, they write out numbers with letters. Okay, so that the, the uh, letter D is the number four, okay, for example. Okay? And the number 14 is actually a name. The name is David. And so the whole point of Matthew in chapter one is he's saying, you want to know who the true Messiah is? From Abraham to David, David. From David to the deportation to Babylon, David. From, David. from the deportation to Babylon, 
to Jesus David, the son of David, the Messiah. This, my friends, is a description of the fulfillment of the ages in Jesus Christ. The coming glory of the Lord in his house should thrill us and motivate us. There's coming a time when the temple at Jerusalem will be established and Jesus Christ will reign as the son of David from Jerusalem. We're on victory's side, friends. No matter how small our temple looks right now, no matter how tiny and puny it looks, and we are going to take our time and our energy and our effort and say, well, I'd better hoard onto it. I'd better not put any of it at risk. My friends, infinite joy is laid before us. Let's spend it all for the kingdom of God. The utter brilliance of God's plan for his son to come as king should cause us to worship. You see, Advent isn't just about what happened 2,000 years ago in Jesus coming the first time. Advent is also a look ahead to the day when our master and Lord wears the signet ring, the son of David, the son of Zerubbabel. Let's pray. Lord, thrill us with these things. Help us to be done with small things and our own petty priorities. Teach us to live in a grand joy of the risk of our all for your kingdom, not because our work brings in your kingdom, we can do nothing about that, but simply because you are worthy. The silver is yours. The gold is yours. And by silver and gold, we don't just mean our money. We mean everything we are and have. It's all yours, God. I pray you would do some work of soul surgery in any of us where we have not put our faith and hope in Christ. Help that person here this morning who does not have salvation through Jesus Christ to say to you, Lord, forgive me of my sin by what you did at the cross. I turn from my sin and I turn to you, Jesus. I long for you to be my king. You take over my life. I give you my heart that you may Give me a new heart. A heart of stone that becomes a heart of flesh. Lord, help us all to marvel at Jesus, the Son of David. Now I have some prayers for us to pray up on the screen. Let us take time to confess any sin of withholding from our Lord. And now let us invite the Lord to shake our own world and to bring his glory to earth.
And now let's take time to praise Jesus as the coming son of Zerubbabel and of God. Lord, we confess our sins of withholding from you. We invite you to shake our world and bring your glory to earth. And we praise you, Jesus, that you are, in fact, the coming king. In your name we pray, amen. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Let's stand and sing about the coming of our King.